back to the UConn Internal Medicine Podcast. My name is Rithika Kampella, and I'm a PGY2 here at UConn, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer. All opinions and views expressed in our podcast are entirely the responsibility of the authors and do not represent the opinions of anyone else in the UConn Department of Medicine. The content is presented for educational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. That said, we're back with episode two of our cardiology mini-series, where we dive into some of the most clinically relevant conundrums you'll face and how to navigate them. Continuing with where we left off last time, I am joined by Dr. Erica Faircloth, a former chief of the program and a current second-year cardiology fellow at Hartford Hospital. The minute we hear that a patient's experiencing chest pain, our ears perk up and our hearts start racing because the implication of that in the best-case scenario can mean GERD, but worst-case scenario can mean an MI. Knowing how to appropriately identify an MI and how to escalate care is vital when caring for these six patients, which is exactly what we'll be discussing today. Without further ado. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me again today. All right. And with that, Erica, could you kind of walk us through some of the clinical scenarios which scream MI and how to properly assess for chest pain? Yeah, sure. So chest pain assessment is all about the patient's story. The biggest advice I can give you is just ask open-ended questions and let the patient feed you their story. Almost everything you need to know is in the story. The differential is broad and for chest pain, and I think you know that. Uh, I like to structure it so I don't forget. So first, it's the do not miss category. What could kill the patient very quickly? This is ACS, tamponade, dissection, PE, pneumothorax, esophageal rupture. And once I think about those and I break it down to other parts of the body, other cardiac causes, pericarditis, heart failure, aortic stenosis, pulmonary, so pneumonia, PE, like we talked about before, uh, nervous system, thoracic radiculopathy, GI, spasm, reflux, ulcers, gastritis, pancreatitis, skin, zoster, MSK, costochondritis, or rib fracture. The, the list is endless, but I kind of break it down into systems so that I don't forget anything. Then it's important to kind of delve into the details. So figure out when the pain started. What brought it on? What were they doing? What made it better? Position, food, aspirin, nothing. What made it worse? Breathing, position, moving. How long did it last? Is it coming? Is it going? Have they been having less pain for the last few months and now all of a sudden it's worse? The patient's description of the pain can really help kind of discover what is going on. A visceral pain will be more vague in description. The patient will say, that they can't necessarily point with one finger. They'll use their whole hand to point to it if you ask them to show you. They may describe it as dull, deep pressure, squeezing. They may have referral to the left or right shoulder, jaw pain, belly pain, back pain. Whereas somatic pain tends to be more pinpoint in location, tends to not move around, and they often are described more as sharp, stabbing, or poking. So having them point is super helpful. And then getting an idea of the other symptoms that surround it. So shortness of breath, fever, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, appetite loss, cough, edema, calf pain, swelling, recent illness, all that is really helpful too. And then as you're painting the story, you need to get risk factors to help you risk stratify. So have they ever had ASCVD, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes? How about a history of DVT, PE, hormone use, recent surgery, cancer, non-ambulation, are they using drugs? Are their family history of cardiac disease or hypercoagulable states? Are they smokers? All this kind of gives you an idea and kind of points you into the right direction. And then doing a good physical is important. So getting a good site of vitals, that's accurate. Looking at their skin, look for JVP, especially with inspiration. Palpating their chest for reproducible chest pain, crepitus, 
do a good lung exam, cardiac exam, abdominal exam, and look for swelling of the legs, calf pain, make sure that pulses are equal. All of that will help you a lot. And I also want to reiterate, because we all know that story of, you know, the 50-year-old man crushing chest pain, came out of nowhere, an elephant sitting on the chest. Patients do actually say that, believe it or not. But I want to reiterate that diabetes and being a woman and older individuals, they may not paint you that exact picture that you're waiting for. They may complain of just nausea, vomiting, neck pain, presyncope, syncope, severe fatigue. And these patients, I have a much lower threshold for thinking ACS. So I just want you to always remember that. High likelihood characteristics may include chest or left arm pain, discomfort, history of angina, and history of CAD. I mean, that, yeah, that's great. That gives us a lot to work with when eliciting a story and I guess helps us determine our own set of differential in our heads and how we can properly escalate it depending on what we're thinking. I guess next, you know, assuming worst case scenario that this is an MI sounding clinical constellation, could you quickly run us through STEMI versus NSTEMIs? Maybe talk a little bit about the pathophysiology, the EKG criteria that we're looking at, the different subtypes of NSTEMI that we kind of get stuck on, and then caveats to when we're looking at EKGs and you know, if a patient has a known left bundle branch block. So cardiac troponin is the preferred biomarker for cardiac myocyte injury. Is It has a really nice sensitivity and specificity in comparison to CKMB. Our high-sensitivity troponin assays for INT are approved for use and have an even greater sensitivity for detection of circulating troponin, as you probably know if you've <laughs> experienced that recently. For patients who present, there's and it's been at least three hours since their symptoms, if they have a normal EKG and a negative high-sensitivity assay, you can actually exclude the diagnosis of MI. So it's very helpful for ruling out patients. Now, although troponin is specific for cardiomyocyte damage, it doesn't tell you why there's damage. So myocardial injury is when troponin level is above the 99th percentile, but it doesn't mean necessarily that it's a myocardial infarction. So if troponin is elevated, they have evidence of acute ischemia, we're dealing with acute myocardial infarction, which can either be a type 1 MI caused by atherosclerosis or thrombosis, which triggers like plaque rupture or erosion, or it can be a type 2 MI with oxygen supply and demand imba- imbalance, as like when you're dealing with severe hypertension, sustained tachyarrhythmias, things like that. If a troponin is rising and falling but is not, does not have evidence of acute ischemia, we actually call this acute myocardial injury. And examples of this are myocarditis, acute heart failure, And if troponins are elevated but levels are stable, which is we kind of describe as less than 20% variation of troponin values in the appropriate context, we may call this chronic myocardial injury. And examples of this are people with structural heart disease and chronic kidney disease, which we see all the time in the hospital. Now, I don't want to give you false hope. Type 2 MIs are not benign. The rate of all-cause mortality in a year after a type 2 MI is higher than that of a type 1. So, and this is probably because of the underlying causes that lead to it rather than actual myocardial damage itself, but the point is is you shouldn't take it lightly, Um, and we often do. The EKG diagnostic criteria for STEMI is equal than or greater than 0.2 millivolts in men, greater than or equal to 40 years of age, or greater than or equal to 0.25 millivolts in men less than 40 years of age, or greater than or equal to 0.15 millivolts in women when you look at leads V2 through V3, or greater than or equal to 0.1 millivolts in at least two other continuous chest leads or two limb leads. So STEMIs due to a left circumflex artery occlusion can be silent on EKGs, and that's a question that people will ask you. So there you go, just gave you points. 
But you also should worry about these patients, so you might not see anything on there. So you should get posterior leads V7 through V9 in these patients. Another important thing to look for is ST segment depression in multiple leads with elevation in AVR, because that can actually mean an occlusion of the left main or proximal LAD, and that's very bad. AVR is always forgotten, and it's, it's important. STEMIs will have reciprocal ST depressions, too, so you can look for that. And then Q waves, of course. So ST segment depressions of greater than or equal to 0.05 millivolts are important indicators of subendocardial ischemia, especially if they're horizontal or downsloping. And T-wave inversions are less specific for acute ischemia, but tall peak waves can be seen in, they're called hyperacute T-waves that precede actually ST segment elevation during transmural ischemia. So you really should pay attention to that. If they're looking real tall, think about that. Detecting ischemia in those with left bundle branch block can be really difficult. There's something called Scarbosa criteria for diagnosis of MI. Left bundle can also be seen when someone has RV pacing leads, so just keep that in mind. And the Scarbosa criteria can be used, but it's really not as specific in that scenario. It's, it's really used for a real left bundle. The criteria include concordant ST segment elevations greater than or equal to one millimeter and leads with a positive QRS. Concordant ST segment depressions greater than or equal to one millimeter in V1 through three, and discordant ST segment elevation greater than or equal to five millimeters in leads with a negative QRS complex. So factors that determine how vulnerable a plaque is to rupture includes the size of the necrotic lipid core, the integrity of the cap, thickness of the cap, activity of inflammation in the area of the atherosclerotic lesion. And those that are more proximal or at bifurcations are way more likely to rupture. So just keep that in mind. And when a fibrous cap does rupture, there's a lot of procoagulant substances that are exposed to the blood, and that, that itself leads to platelet adhesion, activation, and aggregation. Yeah, I find that usually on the floor is a common question or a concern that we have is when we have patients whose tropes aren't really changing or they plateau and we're not really sure what to make of it. So that's been really useful. I guess my next question would be from a management standpoint, could you walk us through the medical versus interventional things that can be done for these patients? But more specifically, I know that there's a specific medication after one receives PCIs, and I know that that's different based on if, they, if the patient has impaired or intact EF, and also there are very significant guidelines for duration of DAPT based on the stents that are placed. So I guess if you could just walk us through the medical interventional managements, but also if you could take us on a stroll down what I call the EBM <laughs> landmark corner, if you could just walk us through some of the trials that show us this evidence so that we're a bit more confident in our management. Sure. So when you have a true NSTEMI on your hands, it's important to triage these patients in how high risk they are. So there's two clinically validated risk scores that can help. So there's thrombolysis in MI, or the TIMI risk score, which you probably heard of and the Global Registry for Acute Coronary Events, or the GRACE score. And these scores can help you identify high-risk individuals who might need early invasive strategies. So the TIMI has seven indicators, age greater than 65 or equal to greater than 65, presence of three or more risk factors for CAD. So those things are like diabetes, cigarette smoking, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, family history of premature CAD, known CAD, aspirin use within the past seven days, two or more episodes of angina within the past 24 hours, ST changes of greater than or equal to 0.05 millivolts, positive cardiac markers. So those things all make up the score. A TIMI score of three or more have a, a bigger benefit from heparin and early invasive strategy. Gray score has eight variables, and that includes age, kilip class, 
systolic blood pressure, ST segment deviation, cardiac arrest at presentation, creatinine, positive initial cardiac biomarkers, and heart rate at admission. And this can actually predict in-hospital mortality and death from MI with pretty good discrimination. These patients you really should consult cardiology on. You should give them at least aspirin, statins, heparin, and pain relief. A meta-analysis of secondary prevention studies showed that there's a significant benefit for aspirin in post-MI patients with a 21% reduction in serious vascular events, 29% reduction in non-fatal MI, and 13% reduction in coronary heart disease related to death and vascular death, and a 20% reduction in major coronary events. That being said, the current OASIS-7 trial did not show any difference of high-dose versus low-dose clopidogrel or aspirin. So therefore, in 2014, the guidelines recommend an initial loading dose of non-enteric-coated aspirin of 162 to 325, and then subsequent doses of only 81 to 162 milligrams per day, so not not necessarily the high-dose. The high-dose has more bleeding, and there's no real improvement in outcomes. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the P2Y12 inhibitors in a little bit. So really, there's two main treatment pathways, an invasive strategy and an ischemia-guided or conservative strategy. In the invasive strategy, we're talking about cardiac angiogram and possible revascularization. And this can happen in different time settings. So within two hours for unstable patients, early, which is defined as within 24 hours for high-risk individuals, and delayed, which is between 24 and 72 hours for intermediate-risk patients. The in- immediate invasive strategy really should be performed in patients with like refractory angina, patients with signs or symptoms of heart failure or new worsening mitral regurgitation, hemodynamic instability, ischemia at rest, or low-level activity despite being on intensive medical therapy, sustained VT or VF. So really your unstable patients. In 2014, the AHA and ACC guidelines recommended an early invasive approach for those who had a grace score of 140 or greater than 140 and a temporal changes in troponins or new ST depressions. An ischemia-driven strategy means that basically we intensify their medical regimen and only pursue the real invasive evaluation if the patient fails medical therapy with refractory angina or they continue to have recurrent ischemia. The ischemia-driven approach is really recommended for patients who are deemed lower risk. This is true, especially in women with NSTEMIs, because they actually cause more harm than good by doing further invasive strategies, if not indicated. So this really means that low scores, such as a TIMI of 0 or 1 or a GRACE score of less than 109 and negative troponins in women, really we should be focusing on non-invasive approaches. Non-invasive testing is recommended prior to discharge in low to intermediate risk patients who have been free from ischemic symptoms with 12 to 24 hours at rest or with low-level activity. So you can do a stress test, basically. Now, out with the oxygen for those who are not hypoxic. There's actually been several studies. One is called the AVOID trial, actually, which suggests that increased infarct size can occur when someone's given oxygen when they have a STEMI but not hypoxemic. So it can actually do more damage than good. In terms of P2Y12 inhibitors, the CURE trial looked at treatment with aspirin monotherapy versus aspirin plus loading clopidogrel followed by maintenance doses in over 12,000 patients with NSTEMI, and there was an associated 20% reduction in primary composite endpoint of one-year cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal MI, and stroke compared to aspirin monotherapy. So there is benefit there. Then the Trilogy ACS and the Pegasus TIMI 54 studies have driven DAPT length of treatment, but really length of treatment, you have to weigh the risk of bleeding. 
Now, in patients with ACS, that being a true NSTEMI or STEMI treated with a cabbage, there's class one recommendation to complete DAPT with aspirin plus clopidogrel, prostagril, or ticagrelor. And those treated with medical therapy alone, there's a class one uh, recommendation for at least 12 months of aspirin plus clopidogrel or ticagrelor. For those with STEMI that received lytics alone, there's a class one indication for at least 14 days and up to 12 months of aspirin plus clopidogrel. And lastly, those were treated with a PCI, so either bare metal or drug-eluting, there's a class 1 recommendation for at least 12 months of dual therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel, prosegrel, or ticagrelor. And those with stable ischemic heart disease, so those are not the patients we were just discussing before, who have a bare metal stent, they should receive at least one month of clopidogrel plus aspirin as a class 1 recommendation. And continuation beyond that might be reasonable as a class 2B recommendation. And those with a stable ischemic heart disease who got a drug-eluting stent, class 1 recommendation for clopidogrel for at least 6 months plus aspirin, and beyond that, a 2B recommendation as well. So prosegrel and ticagrelor are more potent and have a quicker onset than clopidogrel and actually have been associated with improved clinical outcomes in two big trials. Uh, one was the triton timmy 38 I believe, with prosegrel and Plato trial for ticagrelor. And both of these have been associated, though, with more bleeding. So prosegrel is definitely not recommended in anyone with active bleeding, a history of TIA, stroke, or those who are greater than or equal to 75 years of age. So we do not give then. You can use the DAPT score, which looks at age, comorbidities, stent type, and whether or not they have heart failure to give some objectivity to the length of treatment. And then other treatments. So beta blockers. They should be used if patient's not in a shock state or at risk for cardiogenic shock and don't have significant heart block, which means a PR greater than 240, second or third degree heart block without a pacer, or active bronchospasm. And the benefit of a beta blocker leading to reduction in cardiac work and myocardial oxygen demand has been proven in several clinical studies. It's been shown actually that early use of beta blockers in ACS reduce myocardial ischemia, reinfarction, and ventricular arrhythmias, and improves long-term survival. So this is why it's a class one indication to initiate beta blockers within 24 hours in the right patient population, of course. And then it's important to know that although nitrates have not been shown to have any benefit in survival, they are helpful with pain and lead to endothelium-independent vasodilation in the peripheral and the coronary vascular beds. So it should not be used, though, in the patients that have had sildenafil in the last 24 hours or tadenafil in the last 48 hours. And they should be avoided in patients with hypotension, severe aortic stenosis, or RV infarctions because they need a higher preload, so you don't want to hurt that. Intra-aortic balloon pumps may actually be used to bridge to revascularization for those with recurrent or refractory ischemia because it, it reduces afterload, reduces myocardial oxygen demand, and actually augments cardiac output and coronary blood flow during diastole. However, that itself has not shown to reduce any cardiovascular events. So it could be helpful, but not one that has reduced events. Morphine can be used to treat ischemic pain in patients if they're already on maximally tolerated anti-ischemic therapy with beta blockers and nitrates because it can lead to venodilation and reduction of preload. And it's also an analgesic, but there's been no real studies to evaluate the benefit in NSTEMI. And there's also some concern regarding interactions with antiplatelets. So just be careful with that. ACE inhibitors and ARBs have been shown to reduce the risk of death when the patient has LV dysfunction and when they were treated in the early post-MI period. They did a study called Valiant, SAVE, and also ISIS-4 trials. 
In 2014, the AHA and ACC guidelines on NSEMI recommended ACE inhibitors or ARBs to be started in those with ACS and LV dysfunction or with hypertension, diabetes, or stable chronic kidney disease as a class 1 indication, so another medicine they really should be on. Aplerinone, which is an aldosterone antagonist, which has been proven in the epiphysis trial, I might have said that that name wrong, (laughs) to reduce the risk of death when added to ACE inhibitors or beta blockers in post-MI patients with LV dysfunction and symptomatic heart failure or diabetes. So that can be helpful as well. Wow, that was a very exhaustive run-through of all the different trials and the evidence that really leads us to our current management. Thank you so much for walking us through that, Erica. Um, the next question that I have for you is one that, as residents, we don't really have a lot of exposure to. We hear about it in the periphery, but it's not something that's at the forefront of our mind when a patient comes in with an MI. That's, you know, their recovery once they leave the hospital. A very popular form of obtaining this is cardiac rehab. So if you could just kind of walk us through what the concept of that is in a nutshell, and, you know, that'll give us a better idea of what to expect our patient's recovery will look like once they leave our care. So cardiac rehab is awesome. It's a supervised program that includes physical activity, education for patients on healthy living, and counseling, and it's indicated really for anyone who has a heart attack, heart or lung transplant patients, coronary artery angioplasty with or without stent placement, heart failure, or cardiac surgery. So even the valve patients can should go to cardiac rehab. There's actually also indications for vascular disease too, so your PAD patients can go. There's There's three parts to it, three major phases. Phase one actually starts when the patient is in the hospital. So that's important to know. Second phase is outpatient. And the third phase is when they, quote unquote, graduate from cardiac rehab and they keep up with the exercises on their own. And I actually had the chance to go to cardiac rehab recently and watch the patients there and interact and see what happens. And patients really benefit from this, this being able to go a couple times per week learn from the people there, the other patients there, understand their medications, get weighed, and they do improve in terms of their ability to exercise. And it's it's actually quite remarkable. So it actually increases the quality of life and ability to perform daily living activities, promotes patient mood, understanding of their disease. And compared to usual care, it was associated with a reduction in total and cardiac mortality rates of 20 and 26% respectively. And they actually did like a study of over 600,000 Medicare beneficiaries who were hospitalized for coronary conditions and revascularization procedures. And mortality rates were 21 to 34% lower with the patients who were in a cardiac rehab program than among the non-participants. So really refer, refer, refer. That's that's remarkable recovery and, and decrease in mortality. We don't really get to see such amazing numbers like that. And with that, I thank you so much for your time again, Erica. Getting called to evaluate a nuance at chest pain or staring at tombstones on an EKG are definitely nerve-wracking, but with a good foundation to understand what the patient's history and objective findings are telling us, we'll be better equipped to interpret the patient's repeat trope or call you to activate the cath lab. Again, that's all we have for you today, guys. Stay curious and until next time.